Hello, it's Toby. A quick word from me before we start with this episode. If you listened to our last episode, which featured our 100th guest, then you'll know already that we have created a new community for listeners of this podcast. And I'm pleased to report at the time of recording this that all kinds of people from many different dimensions of our listenership are already popping up there and saying hello, and it's growing literally every day. So if you would like to be in the ground floor, almost, of this new community, then you'll find the link in the show notes for this episode. Just click it and you can join us. One thing I'd like to do there is to kind of crowdsource the wisdom of our listeners for proposals for future topics or future guests for the podcast. So if you've got a bright idea about that, I want to hear it. Another thing I'd like to do is pick up on any interesting questions or controversies even that emerge from the conversations that we record on this podcast to get your different perspectives on them. And I'm going to say right now that I know exactly what I hope I'll hear feedback on from the conversation you're about to listen to. There's a question I ask John near the end of this episode about why educational research can't be a bit more like public health research with you know, randomized control trials and so on. And if it was, whether that would help get it into policymakers' hands any better. That's something, uh, as I explained during the conversation, that I've been low-level wondering about for years. And now I have this job, I finally get to put questions about these things to people who know what they're talking about. So if anyone listening to this has a perspective on this particular issue of randomized controlled trials in areas of research other than health, such as education, uh, all about anything else that jumps out at you from the episode you're about to hear, well, then get yourselves into our Slack community and tell me, because (laughs) how else do I know what to think about things? Hello. Welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. John O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is the Head of Qualification Standards and Certification at the Qualifications and Quality Assurance Authority of Ireland. That's a government agency that looks after quality in higher and vocational education. He's taken part in national advisory bodies on school curriculums and on research integrity, and he's also a member of several EU and UNESCO expert policy advisory groups in the areas of education, training, and skills. And as well as his full-time public administration roles, he's also a part-time researcher. For his PhD, he studied the use of educational research policy in Ireland. And finally, he's also written about reforms to the science advice system in Ireland more generally. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Toby. Thanks for having me. So before we dive too deep into education research and and policy, um, which is what you signed up for, I did want to take advantage of that other area of expertise, which I mentioned of yours, which is the broader topic of how Ireland does science for policy more generally. I know there's been some discussions lately uh, about how to strengthen the ecosystem, and you've written a bit on this yourself, as I mentioned. So perhaps for people who aren't familiar, which includes me, could you start by giving us a rough outline of what exists in Ireland right now, what's going on there. Sure, there's a strong system of research and and innovation in in Ireland, but probably an underdeveloped national system for for science advice. So there's a lot of good activities, 
but there's some challenges in terms of coordination and, and coherence. So, for example, at government level, you'll have entities like the National Economic and Social Council, which advises our Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, on strategic policy issues re- relating to could be things like sustainable economic, social and, and environmental development. At government level, like many countries, we have a COVID-19 advisory group, which replaced a, a national public health emergency team. So at this stage, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, that group gives scientific advice and evidence and practices around dealing with the medium to long term preparedness against, against COVID-19. There's bodies like the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which gives independent advice on budgets and, and, and fiscal matters. Then you get into departments themselves, and, and many government departments will have their own research and evaluation units within them. So, for example, our Department for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, it has its own analysis and data functions within the department. And, and it also manages some large-scale studies, for example, the Growing Up in Ireland study. You'll see the same thing in, in, in Ministries for Environment, Climate and Communications, which has its own research and advisory unit within it to give technical advice to, to, to department officials. Then you see things like uh, specialist public uh, research agencies. So Environmental Protection Agency will do research on environmental issues. You'll have agencies in the area of marine, in food production and agriculture, uh, and also economics. So specialist public agencies charged with doing uh, research, which has public policy applications. Within the government itself, within the parliament and the Houses of Parliament, there is a, a library and research service so that parliamentarians there can access expertise on, on things like law or social science, economics, environmental issues. And the research function there can produce research briefs on demand for, for the politicians. And then, of course, you have the the universities themselves and, and the research uh, institutes on, on, on the supply side, which I suppose, and we'll get into this, but to varying degrees uh, of success, their research is, is connected uh, with, with policy. I'd say just having traced that landscape, I'd say there's a recognition now that Ireland, in comparison to other countries, probably has a weakness or a deficit in terms of really these intermediary functions or organizations that can kind of more systematically and more coherently synthesize and translate research findings for policymakers. So I think that's a, probably a recognized deficit. There are some good practices and in instances of that, but it's not particularly well developed at systematic or, or at national level. There seems to be a recognition these days, too, about the capacity of policymakers and need to strengthen the capacity of policymakers, people like myself, to be aware of uh, the potential of scientific evidence, to access it and to be able to, to use it well. And so there's, there's work ongoing there, too. And also just to say, I suppose that there is there's a lot of interest in terms of national coordination or oversight or governance of science advice systems. So... Currently, we don't, Ireland doesn't have a, a government chief scientific ad, uh, advisor or an office. So ah, okay. That's interesting. I know Ireland used to have a chief science advisor because I've interviewed him. So what happened to that role? That's right, Toby. And uh, so on, until, until 2012, there was a, a standalone government chief scientific advisor. And there was also at that time a council for, for science and technology. Maybe... 
as part of kind of a, an austerity program, it was decided in 2012 to bring together that uh, government chief scientific advisor function and the director general of Science Foundation Ireland, which is the, the lead body responsible for promoting science and significant responsibility for funding public science in Ireland. And so that happened in 2012. And as you say, a very um, influential and scientist had the job for, for a decade. There was some dissatisfaction, particularly from the academy, who questioned, well, are there doubts about the independence when you're having, when you're having the role of giving government advice on science and you're also responsible for the body that may be seeking funding for science or promoting science. And, and Science Foundation Ireland came out of an economic ministry, so it had a particular interest in science for enterprise, for economy, for work and technology. And so there was that concern around the independence, but also there's a practical concern here about one person doing two big jobs. So the government have recently decided that it's going to appoint a standalone government chief scientific advisor. And on that point, uh, as of 1st of March 2023, the Minister for Research, Innovation and Science just tweeted that he's got government approval for a chief scientific advisor and a new science advisory forum. Right. So there's still clearly plenty of demand. I mean, people are aware this needs to be sorted out. I suppose the demand is kind of coming from a few different directions. And I mean, and there's been some significant structural changes. So we have a new government department since 2020 that's responsible for higher education, research, innovation and science. And so you have a single ministry now, which is responsible for policy on science. It has the funding levers there also. And it's interested in leading the way in terms of better connecting research to policy. So that's a significant development. Uh, we had obviously, like everyone else, the pandemic and there was a you could see the contribution of scientific advice to decision making there. Ireland, relatively speaking, has very high levels of public trust and confidence in science and in scientists. So that's a, a useful condition also. And importantly, the, the academy that's been really leading the kind of academic engagement, building better systems for connecting research in higher education so that it contributes to, to public policy. So those probably conducive conditions that have led to a number of particular initiatives or reforms. I might point to three in particular. And the first one I would point to is that government have commissioned a public consultation on where to next for science for policy advice. And it's made the distinction in the consultation between science policy and science for policy. And it's particularly interested in this consultation in the latter. How can we better connect public science with public policy making? Okay. Okay, so this is not just a, a conversation in a ministry somewhere. This is a public consultation. So the public consultation is significant and, and often typical of the way we often do things in Ireland. It's true there's public consultation so everyone can have their say or interested parties can have their say about what's the best way for us to organize ourselves in terms of, of science advice for, for policymakers. So it was the questions were around when looking looking at at perspectives and how to build capacity to to identify policy issues on which research engagement will be will be a significant 
assistance to policymakers and, and strengthen the connections between research and policy. And so the questions were, were around fairly open-ended types of questions, but how, how do you think that science advice should fit into the overall policy? So giving plenty of, of room for people to offer their views there. Looking for examples of, well, do you see instances where, where science and policy are well connected, where it works well? Where, where, where could we make improvements in this? And there were questions around the skills and competency set of researchers, policymakers, and brokers uh, to have a, a more aligned, better connect us uh, ecosystem of science advice. There were questions around how do we get citizens involved in this whole process of science advice? And there were questions too about how how can we leverage or use developments at EU level and the, and the wider European and even global uh, science advice e ecosystems. A second significant development, I mentioned earlier, a new department responsible for higher education, research, innovation and science. Well, they, in the middle of 2022, they published a national strategy for innovation, uh, for research and innovation. It's called Impact 2030. And the clue, I suppose, is, is in the title. But the first pillar of that national strategy is around maximizing the impact of research and innovation on, on the economy, yes, on society and, and on the environment. You can get a good insight into what government is thinking around the relationship between research and policy and to ensure that research and innovation system is fully engaged in making an impact including informing better public policy making. The strategy also goes on to talk about the importance of enhanced long-term connections between policymakers across all government departments and the public research system, but also to improve the capacity of policymakers to make their knowledge needs more, more articulate and clear to researchers. It also talks about engagement and brokering mechanisms. So you get a flavor there in terms of the insights and the expectations from government about the contribution of research to, to public policy. So, so lots going on. Yes, national, national conversation on the topic, uh, new strategies, and a commitment for building capacity on the part of, of policymakers. So there's some of the, um, the changes that are on foot in, in terms of this kind of more, more dynamic space and renewed interest in, in, in science advice more generally. That's great. Thanks for being so so comprehensive. And what an interesting time to be alive. It sounds like basically every element of how science and policy interact are up for grabs. I guess we shouldn't dwell too much on this, especially when it's so up in the air. Maybe we'll come back to you in a few years to see what's come of it all. But I did just have one question, and this is from reading between the lines a little bit, so please correct me if I'm wrong. You mentioned the, the 2030 impact strategy talking about needing to improve the understanding by the research community of what the government needs. What motivates that, uh, that observation? So is that like a polite way of, by the government of saying that they feel like public research is not aligned with what they need with their political agenda? Or is it more about communication lines between the two or, or what? I'd say, there's, I'd say that people view this as an opportunity. And um, there are some good practices that you'll see and where, where, where there's very strong collaboration between policymakers and, and researchers. At the very early stages from even, even problem diagnosis, problem framing, to and fro, fro on the research, on, on the research questions, 
and looking at how it might get used ultimately. But also, I think there is an awareness that particularly for where a lot of public research is conducted in the universities, we're not making the best use of that research in public policy making. Now, there are plenty of complexities involved in there, and you need to be quite careful and sensitive in how you create systems and mechanisms which better connect, particularly public research and public science undertaken in universities with the needs and the knowledge needs and policy problems and complexities that policymakers are facing. But I, th I think there is a, a, an appetite to take things slowly while there is some developments and to figure out sensible, uh, co-designed, collaborative ways of, of having better partnerships. So I'd be quite optimistic. Um, so while sometimes you can, you can find, well, why can't these two worlds better connect? Um, why is there so much frustration? Is, is there any point in trying to do anything here? I'd be quite optimistic um, the way that these reforms have been spoken about and particularly by, who, by who's involved. And, and again, particularly, I think, um, strengthened by the fact that the academy itself is taking a leading role in contributing to the national discourse on this and contributing ideas about how it might be taken forward. Okay. Thanks for that uh, quite substantial detour. I think listeners will find it interesting and it's certainly useful for me to be up to speed on what's going on. Um, but only 15 minutes in, maybe we should start talking about what you want to talk about, which is uh, education policy in Ireland and its interaction with scientific evidence. So, yeah, I mean, basically the floor is yours. What are the areas here where education policy needs scientific input? I mean, maybe first off to just make a couple of initial observations. I mean, our, our education system uh, is generally good and generally performs well. I mean, I think that's probably helpful to say at, at, at the outset. So, some people are more influenced by these than others, but those kind of international benchmarks. But if, if you look at, I mean, the, the quality and, and equity dimension or the extent to which our education system prepares people for, for life, for, for work, for continuous learning, our, our teacher education system and, and the development of teachers and, and school leaders, the evaluation culture that's in there around, particularly around quality and improvement in the education system performs quite well. There's robust governance in place for, for education at all levels. And Ireland is no different than many other countries in terms of your structure of education. You've got primary, post-primary, vocational, higher education. Governance framework is, uh, is satisfactory and people don't have any major doubts about that. Investment and funding is, uh, compares quite well with other countries. There's always demands for, for higher investment in education. So, yeah, it has, Ireland has a good, the reputation of its education training system is, is quite strong, I'd say that first. And maybe another observation is that all education training systems in, in every country, they're, they're kind of uniquely connected to the, to the history and the culture and the tradition of that particular country. So they're all quite unique. And that's, that does raise some issues and challenges when thinking about bringing research to bear on education training systems, which are particularly rooted in their own uh, national national context. But I suppose for, for my own interest, I'm on the policymaking side of things and part of the, the bureaucracy and public administration. But I have a, an interest and continue to have an interest in how, how can educational research contribute to the ways I think to new ideas, new prospects, Yes, uh, helping 
work through particular problems and challenges. And quite often I find myself saying, well, I wish I knew more about this. Or I wish there was more scientific knowledge about this particular piece of A. So that kind of motivated me to do a, to undertake a PhD study in, the, in this area of work. And, and so it was looking at the relationship between education and research and education policy. And so that was my, I suppose, initial interest and, and scope of the piece of research that I, that I undertook. Okay, so you've got scientific evidence on the one hand, and you've got policymakers like ministers and so on on the other hand. And so the question is, well, I was going to say the question is how well are the two sides connected, but maybe more broadly, how effectively does the evidence make it into policy? Yes, and so then the research questions came from that was first of all to establish, well, to what extent does education and research impact on, on policy making process in Ireland within those two communities there to get some measure. So that was, I suppose, the, the, the dependent variable in this piece of research to get a measurement of the extent to which researchers are of the view that their research connects with policy at all or to varying degrees. And, and, and is this research that is intended to make it into policy? So is this, is this where researchers are doing the work because they want to improve the way education policy is made? Well, I think, yeah, I think that, and that was one of the questions that, that we would have asked the, uh, the, the, the researchers about. What do you think the purpose of your research is in terms of, uh, and are you really writing with policymaker audience in mind? And that was one of the independent variables we had a look at. So that was, that was an interesting piece in its first, but I mean, the, the finding there was quite strong. I mean, um, and so some people might talk about the, the disinterested uh, academy in, in policy issues, but 68% of education researchers in Ireland self-reported that making uh, an impact or influencing policy is a high priority for them in terms of undertaking their research. So that was a, an interesting finding in its own right. So the first question was to try and identify, well, to what extent is it do researchers think that their research is having any impact on, on policy and what kinds of impacts do they see it having? To also think about well, what are the factors that might explain that? If, is there variation in those, those self-reported measures of research use and what might be explaining those? So what, the, what are the independent variables in this and how what might we better connect education and research and policy making? So, the design then of the study kind of flowed from, from those questions. And so the first thing to do was, well, how do you measure research use? There's many different ways of, of looking at this, but I think most people conclude that it's, it's not a binary state on or off. Research influence didn't influence. So I was, I was quite impressed by the literature and the theoretical work that sees research use in policy in terms of incremental stages. And that could extend from simply getting my research on the policymaker's desk uh, to going, going beyond that and the, and, and, and the policymaker is aware of the research. They actually read the research. The findings may have been adopted. The, you may see those findings in, in policy documents or texts down the line. And, and so there are degrees of research use or degrees of impact of research on policy. And I think that's a sensible way to think about this idea of research use. So that was the dependent variable, research use. 
And at the same time, the survey collected a lot of information around from, from the literature. There's a suggestion that a lot of factors or elements influence the likelihood that research gets picked up by policymakers. So some of the ones we would have, we would have, I would have tested would have been, does it matter what institution you're working in? Does it matter how long you've been working as a, as a researcher? Does that point you made earlier, Toby, the extent to which you report that you have a strong policy orientation in, in, in the work that you do as an educational researcher? Does, does your disciplinary background matter? Does the, does the research method you have, where you're getting your funding from matter? Is it, is it the central pot that goes into the university or is it competitive funding, funding that you might be bidding for at national level or at European level? Does it matter about the kinds of dissemination activities you do or, or the media that you use to, to promote uh, your research findings? So fantastic. So you're dangling all these really interesting questions about what it is that has the impact on impact. And I want to know the answers. <laughs> what, what did you discover? So those kind of independent variables were, were tested and they were based on the literature. We t- uh, tested 22 of those independent variables. 11 of them had a statistically significant correlation with research use, the dependent variable. And four in particular were pre- particularly powerful in terms of predicting the likelihood that educational research is going to have a high intensity influence on policy making. And they were the institution you're working in. That point that you made about the policy orientation of the research, particularly powerful. The length of service, so you have to do your time as a researcher to have that kind of influence or make it more likely that your research is going to be picked up. And crucially, the frequency of collaboration between researchers and policymakers. And, and, and that one on its own, frequency of collaboration, accounted for um, over a quarter of the variance in reported levels of research use across the entire population. Right. So what you're saying there is the more interaction you as a researcher have with policymakers, the more chance there is that your work will influence policy. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, sure. But I mean, that's interesting in itself because it's a very practical element. What you didn't mention in your little short list of important factors there were things about the research itself, like the, you know, the topic, the timeliness, the type of research, the type of experiment, the quality and rigor. Yeah, well, and I, I, I think I wasn't going to test around the quality or the rigor of the research. I mean, that's a, that is an interesting point, too, in this, in this discussion around the, the relevance and the rigor of educational research. I mean, and that's... I suppose primarily an issue for the scientific community uh, to consider and to take on. And, and there has been that discussion around education and research, more so in other countries, and maybe it's timely too in Ireland, but to, to look at the, the relevance for policymakers of educational research and, and the rigor. And I mean, there's lots of good research, good education research goes on in, in universities who are autonomous institutions, who have academic freedom. And it's really important that researchers in universities have the choice to tackle the research questions that they want. And, and, and they may not be paying attention or see it as a particularly important part of their work to focus on the needs of policymakers. 
and when we and and that has to be acknowledged and supported as a, as a really important uh, research. So many many researchers will will be disinterested or not interested, perhaps in the in, in the in the research interests or current research knowledge needs uh, of, of the policymakers. And I mean that's a question around the relevance. Also, you do see some questions around the the rigor of education and research. And I think that is something for the scientific community here, perhaps to to tackle. Also. You get a lot of small scale studies, very small numbers involved. There are challenges around the replicability of educational research. Part of this, you can relate to funding. I mean, the, the, out of the pot of research, uh, relatively small amounts will go to social science and particularly small amounts will go to educational research. So if we want uh, bigger studies, longitudinal studies, those kind of studies, well, then government have to support them and, and fund those kind of studies. But there are questions around both the relevance of, of, of research for policymakers. I'm not saying that should necessarily be overly influenced by government or by the state in a particular way. And there are some questions around the, the, the rigor also of education research, which, which obviously does matter uh, and is linked with the likelihood of research getting picked up. Hmm. Okay, so that was going to be my follow-up question then, because of course it makes sense with limited funding that many studies will be small. And I wondered whether then when you have the larger scale studies, which one might imagine will be viewed as more robust by policymakers, that then improves policy uptake. Absolutely. I mean, this, I mean, if government and policymakers are commissioning a study, and they're paying for it. I mean, part of the, my PhD too is that I interviewed researchers and interviewed um, policymakers, officials. What they will say, well, once you've paid for it and commissioned a piece of research, you're much more likely to use it now. So commissioning pieces by officials, uh, you're invested in the piece. You're obviously a lot more engagement with the researchers. So it's probably going to be that more collaboration and perhaps increasing the likelihood that we're going to use these findings because we've commissioned them now. There are other issues around that too, and there are, there are some people who take the view where those kind of working on those kind of commissions and getting that close to policymakers where government is the client for your research uh, can raise questions or present threats or risks to the independence of the research. And now, I don't think those issues are, are in, insurmountable, but definitely there are, there are connections between funding, I'd say also incentives. Uh, for researchers and connecting your research to policy making. I mean, it seems to me, and, and researchers will say this, and policymakers will say it, that the incentive scheme perhaps for academic researchers is not well aligned with the incentives for, for policymakers. And so, and so policymakers have to respond to pressures of government, parliament, uh, public politicians and academics and researchers primary duty is to the scientific community and then when you look at the way that academics maybe are incentivized in terms of research it seems to be encouraging researchers to focus on publishing in q1 journals that have a high journal impact factor for example and that seems to be encouraged by the system and even encouraged by funders and, and policymakers encouraging that system about how we reward and incentivize researchers and 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 if publication in peer-reviewed journals is the way to get on as an academic and move up as an academic and get associate professorship and, and professor status 
well, then you're going to be focusing on the academic community as your audience for you. And, and then you have a potential disconnect between policymakers who will say and tell you that really academics are not writing in a language that's accessible for us as policymakers. They're writing for other academics. Uh, and you have that kind of language barrier. But we should remember that uh, it's the policymakers and the funders that have some influence over the over the incentive schemes uh, that are in play. Yeah, that's a very neat way of putting it. It's a good point. And this leads then to another question, which maybe in turn connects to what you said earlier about this relative weakness uh, in the Irish system at the moment, about evidence synthesis. So it's one thing to have a lot of research going on, even very high quality research, but you still have the question of like, once it's been done, who synthesizes it? Who builds it into a coherent picture? Who presents that picture to the policymakers? I mean, one one partial solution to that, in a way, is to have the research directly commissioned, like we we're just talking about. But even then, you don't want like a hundred excellent commissioned studies. You want a single synthesis of those hundred studies that gives the policymaker the information they need in a way that they can access and use it. Yes, and and and, and Toby. You- you know well from this series of podcasts that people who promote kind of a, a deficit model in, in science advice and say, if only we increase the supply of policy-relevant studies, we'll have cracked it. Um, but of course, it takes a lot more than, more than that. And, and that is, in, in education policymaking in Ireland, there's a, a recognized lack of those, that kind of intermediary mechanisms which can bridge research and, and policy making communities. Now, whether that should be done with inside ministries, whether that should be done within universities, whether that should be done by standalone agencies or bodies who can do that work. But I think there is a recognized need for that type of function. And as, and as you say, to do that systematic, whether it can be a rapid evidence review or more systematic reviews of the existing evidence that's available there is a pressing need for that service in ireland i mean policymakers will will say to you i mean this this idea of bounded rationality the reality of life as 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 a policymaker it can be quite chaotic a lot of day-to-day pressures and challenges with very little time honestly to engage uh, with research, and maybe maybe that needs to change. But these are the realities of policy making: is that it's really difficult to be to be aware of what's happening in research, but then to engage in research. So that kind of a service or brokering mechanism that you speak about, which could synthesize research findings around a particular policy problem, I think that'd be perhaps the the most significant development or innovation that we should that we could introduce into education and policy making uh, in Ireland. And I think there there's some interest in in that for sure from the policy making side and from the researcher side. I mean some people I think overdo this two communities thinking that people are complete uh, from different institutions, different cultures, different worlds, different pressures and and there obviously there are some professional and cultural differences that need to be maintained between policymakers and 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 researchers. But my sense is that there is an interest and a willingness to co-create some new structures, new whether it's networks, relationships, to learn from how these work, 
to test how we might better connect the world of research and science. And that piece that you talk about, uh, more efficient ways of, of connecting huge body of knowledge about education with complex policy questions in education, that kind of translation service or, or mobilizing the research into policy making. That's underdeveloped in Ireland and I think uh, would be a very, very positive step forward. You'd have to be careful in, in creating it in terms of thinking about who owns it, who chairs it, who influences it, who, who sets the agenda for it. But those things could be worked out. But I would suggest it should be, again, a collaborative endeavor, partnership, recognizing uh, the wide range of educational research that's available, a very inclusive type of approach. Sometimes there can be perception that policymakers are only interested in one type of, of research and may be influenced by what they see happening in other, in other policy fields like health or medicine or engineering. And, and so they can have a view that experimental type research where you might find clear or expect to find clear cause and effect type relationships or particularly this idea of randomized controlled trials. Why don't we see more of those in education, which might prove that particular interventions in education work? My experience of policymakers is that there's some of that, but I, I think there's, a, there's an interest and a welcome for a broad range of, of educational research. And then there isn't really that kind of a methodological orthodoxy coming through. And, and, and even, I think there's a welcome for critical policy analysis too on the part of policymakers. And again, I think that's a, it goes under the radar. Like, and, and Ireland doesn't have a strong tradition of critical policy analysis. And so, but I think it's really important in this, in this debate that, that we can open up policy-making processes to scientific scrutiny uh, to make that process more more transparent what happens research when it enters this process what do we know about the pressures that policymakers are under what do we know about the way that agendas are are established or reformed what do we know about the way that particular research is given importance and particular research might be might be marginalized now policymaking is a messy business and so anyone that tells you there's a nice neat policy cycle of identifying problems generating solutions implementing solutions that kind of linear model well they're not doing policy making so it's it's quite a messy convoluted process and research and scientific research plays a role in there but alongside lots of other interests and influences and actors and particularly, I think, in education, because it is very political. Yeah, and that's not nothing. You know, to have a political culture where it's possible, where, where policymakers will invest their political capital in opening up policymaking to critical analysis, in, especially in such a highly politicized uh, subject area as education. I think you're... Yeah, you know, so to hear that it's possible at all. I think you're... Many commentators will... Many commentators have said that there's type of a black box around policymaking, maybe particularly in education, or the department has kind of a mystique about the way it goes around making decisions. But I think it's really important that if, we're, if we really are committed to having better connections between research and policymaking, 
we have to open up that system to more scientific scrutiny. And, and I, I think that can be helpful there. I, I think it, it needs a certain amount of bravery on the part of, of policymakers. I mean, and there can be, as a policymaker, I can be defensive about areas of policy I have responsible for. I think that there's a natural kind of an inclination. But if we're serious about better connections, uh, high trusted connections, long-term relationships, I think we have to open up our processes. We have to know more about the messiness of science and, and, and coming to scientific conclusions, particularly in education. The contested nature of education research, the limitations on in, in terms of findings. But also we have to know more about the policy-making process and, and, and essentially the brokering that goes on. I mean, that, that is the work of a, a policymaker, is you're brokering between interests and values and find, and particularly in education, it's about finding consensus positions. In education, it's never happened that policymakers have come along and said, here's the research, we're going to do it this way. That doesn't happen. I mean, teachers and education community are not convinced. There's there's the role of values and interpretations and shared meanings and uh, and politics, the small p in there, which is really important. I mean, educational policy ha has to be technically sound. And so there's a, a strong analytical dimension to it for sure. But it also has to be politically acceptable. So there's that normative influence, which is really powerful in, in, in education, maybe in education policy particularly. But definitely in education, because everyone has a view on education. Everyone's been through the system. Everyone has some idea about what they think works and what doesn't work and what good education looks like. Um, and, 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 but I think we need to shine a light on, on policymaking and even to be able to, to challenge some of the assumptions that we might be starting with as policymakers. Why are we starting? To, what, what assumptions do we have? What expectations? What understandings do we have? And to allow for research to challenge those assumptions, to disrupt some of the prevailing thinking around education. I think that, that that's a very ad useful additional contribution of research to policymaking. Hmm. Okay. So now in this discussion so far, we've been talking specifically about impact on policymaking in government. But there are other groups, as, as you've kind of indicated, who might also use research in education. As it, it might go directly to professionals, so teachers, I don't know, school managers, local authorities, or whatever, even parents, you know, even students, right? And it makes sense to focus on policymakers. I get that you did that, but I wondered also if you have any idea by way of comparison, do you have any evidence about whether research can have more success in one domain than the other, for instance? It was a question that was outside the scope of this study, but I would hazard a guess that, and let's take one group of practitioners in education, uh, teachers, uh, a critical partner, stakeholder in education, the, the professionals involved in, in, in education systems. I would think that there's the success rate of connecting research with the practice of doing education is not much stronger and much better than it is in terms of its connections with, with policymakers. Now, I would say that there's a lot more educational research available for practitioners than there is for policymakers. And that may come from the fact that universities are often the site where initial teacher education takes place. Naturally, then, you get a lot of universities, schools of education 
will do research on teaching, on curriculum, on assessments, on classroom management, on students, on, on principals. So there's a lot more research going to be available for teachers um, than it's probably available for, as policymakers would say, meeting their particular interests. But normally there isn't a compulsion for teachers to be researched and engaged on an ongoing basis. It's not like teachers are not like GPs or general practitioners in terms of that profession. I mean, when you're a qualified teacher, then you go on and you learn your craft by doing it and you learn a huge amount from, from the staff room. Now, there are some reforms in that area and some developments, for example, the Teaching Council in Ireland, which is the professional body for the teachers, has developed resources and trying to promote a culture of, of research-informed practice, and that's that's having some success too. There's a new centre for school leadership, which again is about better connections between principals and school leaders and using using research to inform their practice. So the, there are some developments, there are some reforms. It's an area of interest, but again, I would say it's an area where there's still plenty of scope for for, for improvement. I'm happy that you mentioned research done in university schools of education because there is one other question that's been, to be honest, kind of bubbling under the surface in my mind actually for years since I first encountered it and I didn't really know what to do with it. And now here we are having this conversation and I'd love for you to help me out in how to think about this. So I used to work a long time ago for a university in the UK and there were two different bits of that university doing different kinds of education research. One was the Department of Education, which which trained teachers. And as you described, like the faculty were involved in all kinds of research into education too. And the other was um, completely separate from that department, as far as I could tell. It was an institute for education research, which did pure research and policy interactions, what they rather cheekily called evidence-based policy research. Uh, I say cheekily because I think there was a bit of a rivalry between these two different parts of the university about who was approaching education research in a better way. So the department treated it as kind of like a social science or even like professional development issue, you know, quite traditional, whereas the institute treated it more as a quantitative thing with very large scale studies, quite sophisticated, like in public health, you know, with randomized control trials and everything. Um, and like I say, these two departments disagreed about what was the right way to do this stuff. And I found that very interesting and had no idea what to think about it. I wonder if you'd like to, to comment on that and help me out. So I might take a, first off, um, my own research did show a difference, a significant difference in terms of the reported levels of research uptake, depending on the institution you're working in. So we've got two uh, research institutes, Economic and Social Research Institute, and the Education Research Centre. They're research institutes, and they do a lot of work on, on education. And then you have the universities, traditional universities. Researchers working in the research institutes reported much higher levels of research uptake by, by policymakers. Now, that's going to be explained by, the, it's the mission of those institutions to target the needs of policymakers. It's written into their, their mission statements of providing uh, research for evidence, supporting evidence-based decision-making and research for policymakers. Their, their funding is going to be linked to policymakers. 
they're funded by the state and, and particular commissions are funded. So again, there's a direct relationship between what they're doing and the needs of, 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 of researchers. They're going to have a lot more collaboration and engagement and interaction uh, with, with policymakers. They're probably going to be undertaking research methods that policymakers may look on more favorably. And so it's not surprising. And universities will sometimes look at en with envy at the research institutes and say, well, look at all the publicity and the attention, media attention that their reports get and are picked up by ministers and are launched by ministers. And you see the briefings that research institutes run and politicians turn up at them and officials turn up at them. And that can researchers in universities and saying, we're, we're just hard pressed here to collect the data, generate the findings and, and get that published. And we, and we don't have the time for doing that kind of dissemination piece or the media piece, uh, but recognizing that the research institutes are really good at it, um, at, the, at the media piece and the dissemination of, of, of their research findings. And, and researchers in, in universities have a lot of other work to do as well in terms of their teaching commitments, et cetera. So all of their time is really devoted to, to, to the research um, activities. So I think, I think there is institutions of the organization to which you belong and the culture of that organization and the incentives in that organization um, and the priorities of that organization, that does have an influence on the likelihood of your research being, being picked up and used in the, in, in, in the research, um, sorry, by, by, by the policymaking community. Your, your other question around, well, why can't education be more, more, more like health? And that does come across. I mean, and you'll, you'll hear talk about evidence-based policy, which, again, I don't need to tell you, is probably overdoing it. And so in education, we often talk about evidence-informed policy at best. But education is, is, is we, we don't, there's a difference. I, I know something about education. I don't know what it's like to develop a new drug. Or, or to build a bridge or a nuclear reactor or to do physics uh, type, type of um, science. But my sense is, and what I know about education, it's part of the social world uh, and context and, and relationships and values and interests, ideology are really powerful forces in, in education. And, and also every school is different and every classroom is different. And so it's really hard to generalize findings in education, even, even from one classroom to another classroom or one school to a different. Context is really important. Relationships and interaction is really important. That's, and that's probably why you get a lot more qualitative research in, in, in education. So in education, you're not dealing with law-like regularities that you might find in, in the hard sciences, uh, such as such as medicine. Well, and again, this is just my impression, but it seems that in some of the hard sciences that it may be easier to understand or or predict or control the phenomena that that, that you're that you're studying. So, compared to developing vaccines or, or designing wind turbines, school impro improvement programs, education improvement programs, they're they're really harder to do because context can't be controlled. And, and this idea of randomized control trials, I mean, they do raise practical and even ethical issues in, in education about giving an intervention to some students and, and, and not giving that intervention uh, to other students. But 
but the randomization of the assignment of groups to those two. So you don't see a lot of that in education. Now, I think I think we should be more open to it and, let, and let's look at it because some people just dismiss it, dismiss it out of hand and some policymakers are interested and they see what's happening in other parts of society and other areas of policy and say, well, are we dodging some of these more uh, experimental methods in, in the area of education? Uh, and so I think I think we should be open to the idea of it, but as uh, I think it was David Berliner back in 2002 talked about, well, really we shouldn't be comparing hard and soft sciences. We should be comparing the hard to do and the easy to do sciences. And, and he would say that it's easy to do science in physics and chemistry and geology. It's hard to do science in social scientists. And in particular, education, and he would describe it as the hardest to do science of them all, because education researchers have to do science in conditions that physical scientists would find intolerable, um, particularly around this idea of controlling the environment in which you're, 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 you're doing your research. So I think there are some unique challenges facing research and informed policymaking in education, just because the nature of, of, of education itself um, but I also do think, and even my own study would, would have found this, that the kind of general picture and recommendations of strengthening evidence-informed policymaking more generally, that they also hold true for education. Yes, we need to address issues on the supply side of, 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 in terms of generating research findings. Yes, we need to increase and improve and strengthen the capacity of policymakers who have to make use of research findings alongside all the other interests they have to deal with. And as you pointed out, we have to find better ways of connecting or aligning or bridging the world of science and, and the world of policy. And definitely those kind of recommendations are absolutely true for education as they are for other parts of the economy and, and society. Right, well, that's an excellent final punch so thanks very much for that. And I have to say overall, what a fascinating area and what a comprehensive and insightful tour of it you've offered. So thank you so much, Dr. John O'Connor. Thank you very much, Toby. Pleasure to be here. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. SAPEA is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>